Maya Van Rossum is the founder of Green Amendments for the Generations, a national nonprofit organization dedicated to inspiring passage of Green Amendments in every state constitution across our nation, and also at the federal level when the time is right. She is also the Delaware Riverkeeper, leading the regional advocacy organization, the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, for over 30 years. She's the author of The Green Amendment, The People's Fight for a Clean, Safe, and Healthy Environment. Maya Van Rossum, welcome to One Planet Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, no, we're excited to hear from you because you do so much. You have many projects, The Green Amendment, and you're going to read to us from The Green Amendment, your book. First, just set it up for us a little bit. So I'm going to read two passages. One sort of lays out what the problem is and why I've started The Green Amendment movement, and then a little bit about my proposed solution. The first excerpt comes from Chapter 8, the chapter about environmental racism. Gina was sick constantly, experiencing frequent gastrointestinal issues and hair loss that left her with permanent bulb spots. Gina's daughter had been born with an extra ear, but no one had endured greater suffering or paid a higher price for Mount Air's callously destructive actions and pollution than Gina's son, Kiwanis. Like Gina, Kiwanis had been born with asthma. His case was particularly severe. When your asthma is at its worst, it's like somebody put a plastic bag over your head and just pulled on a string and cut off all your air circulation, says Gina. He really suffered. He just suffered. When Kiwanis left Millsboro for a year to attend school, his condition seemed to improve significantly. But then he came home, and his asthma was once again a daily source of hardship. Despite nebulizers, inhalers, prescription steroids, and an EpiPen. He struggled to keep it under control. On March 5th, 2014, Gina got a frantic call. While hanging out in a house full of friends, Kiwanis had suffered an extremely severe asthma attack. They were calling an ambulance. She needed to drive immediately to the hospital. By the time Gina arrived, Kiwanis had passed away. He was just 24 years old. I checked with his job, and he went to work early that night, and he stayed until the time to get off, Gina recalls. And he wasn't sick. He didn't tell me he was sick or anything. It was an incomprehensible loss. Just as incomprehensible was the official cause confirmed by an autopsy that took Gina four months to get a hold of. It said he died from an acute asthma attack, she says. And I was like, who dies from asthma anymore? Another heart-wrenching reality was that the very same pollution that likely caused Kiwanis' death had also likely affected him from the very beginning of his life. One evening, Gina sent Maria a form and asked her to take a look. It was a form for supplemental security income, a type of social security assistance for people with disabilities, which Gina had been receiving for Kiwanis. The SSI form said that he could not be educated because of a lack of oxygen to the brain, Maria recalls. Now there is no bigger crime against humanity than a child who, because of exposure issues, cannot develop to be the person that they ought to be. So that's part of why I wrote the Green Amendment. Now here's a little bit about my solution. Imagine, and this is from chapter one, 
Imagine if each state passed a constitutional environmental rights amendment, a green amendment. Imagine if we passed a federal constitutional provision guaranteeing that the government was no more, had no more ability to harm your environmental rights than it does to deny you due process or overturn your right to free speech. In courts of law, constitutional protection would change wishful thinking about the environment into a clear and well-deserved entitlement. Instead of hoping and pleading with lawmakers to do the right thing, constitutional amendments would elevate environmental rights to the status of our most cherished liberties, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and a healthy environment would now be recognized by all as inherent and indefeasible rights that all government officials must protect for the benefit of all generations, even those yet to come. Oh, that outlines that you embody in one person, one individual, but that's multiplied. I mean, you know the statistics better than us. I believe over 7 million deaths a year due to air pollution. I'm not sure how many cancers, the many contaminants. So on such a global level, and of course nationally, when you take that in, it's incomprehensible why something by the Green Amendment, which you're doing now, has not yet been passed. It's kind of mind-boggling. It really is. As you said, there are many statistics. The numbers are really big when we talk about how many people lose their lives, whether it's their actual life through death or the quality of their lives or their ability to live happy, healthy lives because of pollution and degradation to the water, to the air, to the soils, the devastation of our landscapes that affects us so deeply. But it's also very easy, right, when we read the news or read reports to think, okay, well, it's just a bunch of numbers. Okay, that doesn't really affect me. And what I really try to do through the book is tell stories of people like Gina that really bring it home and make people understand that pollution and degradation affects all of us. And the effect is deep. It's emotional. It's on our happy, healthy lives. It's on our families. And so we all really need to care about it and need to find this most powerful solution to addressing environmental degradation and the climate crisis. And go a little bit into that, of what passing the Green Amendment means on the state level and the federal level. I mean, it's been passed in some states and numbers must be rising every day because you're pretty busy, <laughs> you and your group, but then the ultimate aim to the federal level and how they work together. So in the United States of America, when it comes to environmental protection, there is a lot of power in the hands of the states. And there's also a lot of power in the hands of the federal government. Really, the laws by design sort of split the authority between state government and federal government. So when we have a constitutional provision in the state constitution, that will guide and dictate what state government officials can and must do. But it does not address the federal government and federal officials. So we really need a federal Green Amendment to address the federal government and federal officials. And the opposite is true, too. We couldn't just get a federal Green Amendment and really feel like we had fully covered all the ground necessary when it comes to recognizing and protecting environmental rights. Even if we had a federal constitutional Green Amendment, we would want Green Amendments in every state constitution across our nation so we could be ensuring that our states were also doing better. I think in the simplest way I can explain it is that what a Green Amendment is, it is language that recognizes the rights of all people to clean water and clean air, a stable climate, 
and healthy environments and obligates the government to protect those rights and the natural resources of the state for the benefit of all the people in the state, or if it was a federal green amendment in the United States. And they become obliged to protect those environmental rights and those natural resources for the benefit of both present and future generations. That's functionally what it does. But to help people understand what it accomplishes is that a green amendment actually obligates to recognize and protect our environmental rights in the same most powerful way we recognize and protect the other fundamental freedoms we hold dear. Things like the right to free speech, freedom of religion, civil rights, private property rights. We all know how powerfully they are protected from government overreach and infringement. Well, when we have green amendments, now the environment and our environmental rights are added to that list of highest constitutional freedoms and protections. And you really work with legislators. You work with many different states and you adapt that language locally. I was wondering about that process. But just to give us a little bit of background on you, this is now called the Green Amendment for the Generations, but this grew out of your work with the Delaware Riverkeepers Network. Is that right? Yeah, for about 30 years now. I've had the honor of serving as the Delaware Riverkeeper and the leader of a four-state organization called the Delaware Riverkeeper Network. And the entire function of the network is really to help protect and restore the main stem Delaware River, which flows through New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware, and also protect all of the tributary streams that feed the Delaware because the health of the main stem Delaware is dictated by the health of the tributaries that are feeding it water and also by the health of the watershed, all the landscapes, right, that influence and affect water quality and water quantity within the Delaware River system. Now, as the Delaware Riverkeeper, we had been fighting for many years to keep fracking for gas from shale out of the boundaries of the Delaware River watershed. And frankly, we've done that with great success. There's no fracking anywhere within the boundaries of our watershed, despite having some of the most targeted shales. And that is largely due to the work and the leadership of the Delaware Riverkeeper Network. But we were not able to prevent fracking outside of the boundaries of the Delaware River watershed, but still within the watershed state. So for example, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, a portion of the state sits within the boundaries of our watershed. And so we were able to protect from fracking. But outside of the river watershed, fracking was just running rampant and really devastating environments and lives. And given the state of the law at the state level and at the federal level, it was really pretty easy for the frackers to have their way with Pennsylvania's environments and Pennsylvania's communities. But the way I look at it, it really, for the frackers themselves, they didn't think that it was easy enough. And so they very literally wrote for themselves back in 2012, a law that was going to make it even easier for them to frack across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. They put in place automatic waivers from environmental protection standards that would apply to any other industry. It mandated that local communities allow operating drilling and fracking well pads to be placed in every part of their community, including as close as 300 feet from people's homes in the heart of the residential districts within a community. 300 feet is less than a football field, right? So right now through zoning, people have confidence. When I move into a residential community, 
I'm going to be surrounded by other homes, not highly polluting industrial operations. This law would have changed that. This law would have taken away also an obligation that the fracking industry notify those who are on private drinking water wells that their drinking water had become potentially contaminated by nearby fracking operations and more. It did a lot more than that. The industry wrote the law and the Pennsylvania legislature passed it. When this law was passed, I and my Delaware Riverkeeper Network organization knew that we had to challenge it legally. And as one of the few organizations that litigates, it was really important that we do that. But the question that immediately hit us was, how do you challenge a law that's been passed by a legislature and signed by the governor? You don't have too many options. You can protest. You can try to convince the legislators to repeal it or roll it back. These things were not going to make a difference. You could try to elect better people to office so that in a couple of years, maybe the law could be changed. But by that point, it would be too late. We knew we had to stop the law before it started. And we realized that actually in the Bill of Rights section of the Pennsylvania Constitution, there was an environmental rights amendment of the kind that I now call a green amendment that did in fact recognize the rights of all Pennsylvanians to pure water, clean air, and a healthy environment. But the amendment had been ignored for many reasons for decades. But we thought that this law was so egregious, maybe we could revive the legal strength of that long ignored constitutional environmental rights amendment. And so we challenged the law, claiming in very significant part that it was a violation of the constitutional rights of the people of Pennsylvania to pure water, clean air, and a healthy environment. Seven municipalities joined us in that legal challenge. And long story short, the case went all the way up to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And the court, in very significant part, declared the provisions of that law, that pro-fracking law that we were challenging to be unconstitutional because it would violate the environmental rights of the people of Pennsylvania. And as a result, we stopped the provisions of the law from going into effect that we were concerned about before they could ever take hold. And we breathed legal life into that long ignored constitutional environmental rights. In the wake of that, recognizing how powerful this was, that in the absence of that constitutional Bill of Rights provision, there was probably nothing we could have done about that law. I realized how transformational this kind of constitutional protection could be for the environment. And I looked at every state constitution across our nation, and I found that only one other state, Montana, had an amendment of this kind. In that moment in 2014, I decided that I was going to change that. And that's when I wrote the first book, The Green Amendment. I founded the organization Green Amendments for the Generations. And I've been working hard ever since to get constitutional environmental rights amendments that are on par with green amendments in every state across our nation. Yeah. And you talk about how you challenge laws. And in your book, you talk about carefully comparing the industry's claims with the experiences of communities and the findings of scientific experts, do you think these are the basics that people should follow before allowing any type of company on their land? Yeah, it's very, very important, right, that people are fully informed about what is the current situation when it comes to the environment and environmental impacts within their community, and what does the science say about a proposal that's coming down the pike? I mean, what we see, whether we're talking about a residential or commercial development project, 
or we're talking about another industrial operation. The industry will always come in and make claims that it's good for the environment, good for the people. It creates jobs. It won't do any harm. In fact, we hear that from the fossil fuel industry all the time. Fracked gas from shale, the industry is always saying is part of the climate solution, when in fact it is a big part of perpetuating and growing the climate crisis. So it is very, very important for people to be armed with the facts and to be armed with the science. It's also very important that they understand to the degree they can, right? Not everybody's a lawyer. You know, what are the laws that are implicated? What are the agencies that have a role in deciding whether or not they will be exposed to whatever the proposal is that's coming down the pike? But I think also something that's very important whether people have a Green Amendment or not, is really for them to take into their hearts and their minds this understanding and belief that the right to a clean, safe, and healthy environment is truly an inalienable right that belongs to all people by virtue of the fact that we are here on this earth. It's not something that government has given to us. Government doesn't give us the right to clean water and clean air. We're born with that. The question is, what do we do to protect those environmental rights from harm by industry, by developers, and by unscrupulous lawmakers? One of the things that we do is we try to pass and enforce good laws. The problem is the way all the laws are written nationwide is they really, at the state level and the federal level, they really start from a place that pollution and degradation is acceptable. And so we need to just manage it. And they manage it by issuing permits that very literally legalize the environmental harm that's about to happen. They don't start from a place of, is this pollution or degradation avoidable? Can we actually prevent this? And so one of the things that a constitutional Green Amendment does is it actually, first off, it recognizes the inalienable rights of all people to a clean, safe, and healthy environment. It means that when people go to advocate for their environmental rights, they're not just advocating for a belief that they hold in their hearts and their minds, but they will now be advocating for a constitutional right that belongs to them because they are in their state or they are here in the United States, depending on which Green Amendment that we're talking about. And that's something easy for people to understand. You don't need to understand the nuances of the Clean Water Act to understand a constitutional right. And then what it also does is it very literally constitutionally obligates our government to refocus themselves, to be focused on preventing pollution and degradation, not legalizing it through permitting. Exactly. And yes, the laws are often protecting the polluters or the onus is on proving the fact that maybe it's a chemical, let's say, for example, PFAS or something are actually causing health damage or deaths. But by the time you prove it, so many people have been affected and then they tweak it a little and it's still in the system under a new name. 100%. You're absolutely right. And I think PFAS is a really good example, right? That man-made family of chemicals that is contaminating drinking water supplies and environments across the nation. One of the reasons why industry and the Department of Defense were allowed to use PFAS chemicals in a way that it proliferated throughout the environment, devastating the health, safety, and lives of so many people in so many aspects of our environment was because literally PFAS was not regulated. There was a big gap in the law. It was not addressed. Even to this day, it's largely not addressed. But if people have a constitutional right 
to clean water and a healthy environment, then even if there is not a law, when they see government officials behaving in a way or not taking action in a way that allows dangerous chemicals to get into the environment, when the science tells us that those chemicals will have serious consequences, even if there's not a law in place, we can turn to our constitutional right to clean water on a healthy environment, to seek and secure government action. It's one of the powerful benefits of a constitutional right is it fills the gaps as well as strengthening the laws that we have on the books. And so in light of the Inflation Reduction Act, how does that, it's giving us options, it's financing clean energy and different things. Does that change or make your movement any easier? How does that change the landscape? So every time there's a new law that's passed that advances good things or advances bad things, because the Inflation Reduction Act does do a lot for clean energy and also for equitable access to clean energy jobs that are accessible to lower income communities, to BIPOC communities, communities that are so often ignored, marginalized, or targeted for harm. But the Inflation Reduction Act also has a lot of good things for the fossil fuel industry, including advancing carbon capture and sequestration and hydrogen hubs, which the industry and government say, oh, this is clean energy, good for the environment. And actually, those are just other ways to perpetuate dirty fossil fuels over a long period of time. So what a green amendment does when we have laws like that pass is when those laws are advancing good things, the green amendment can be used to uplift and support and make sure that government actually uses the good aspects of the law to the fullest extent possible. And when there are bad things like advancing more dirty industrial operations that people can not just look to the language of the law to decide how they're going to be impacted. They can always remember that they have this constitutional right to a clean, safe, and healthy environment. So if that law is now going to allow actions and activities that have devastating consequences for the environment, even though the law legalizes that bad outcome, the Constitution doesn't necessarily say it's also constitutional. So people can turn to the Constitution because the Constitution is the highest power. And so we have to look at the Inflation Reduction Act that's going to be operating at the federal level and partially at the state level. And so it's really going to depend on what specific context we're talking about in terms of how it advances to know how green amendments when they're passed will make a difference. Because as you said, at this point, right, we only have green amendments in three states, Pennsylvania, Montana, which I mentioned. But last year, we secured a green amendment in the state of New York. We're working in over a dozen other states to get green amendments passed, but we're not there yet. And so passages of good laws and bad laws actually help us make the case as to why constitutional green amendments are so essential, because the laws aren't always good enough. We know that because so many people are suffering. And all too often, the laws really allow and or encourage bad stuff to happen, including creating environmental sacrifice zones, where generally the focus is BIPOC communities and low-income communities. And so you begin your book, The Green Amendment, by recalling your mother and grandfather who loved nature and social justice. And you've passed this on. I know you run a podcast as well with your daughter, Annika. So, you know, what did you learn from your family that inspires you to maintain your resolve and hold fast to your missions? So the first thing I learned is that you need to live what you believe whether it's environmental justice, social justice, environmental protection, 
do whatever you can live your best life to try to advance that good objective goal and belief. We can all do better in our own personal lives. And that's really important. I think the other thing that I learned, my parents did it in a different way than I do it, but they did it every day. When they saw, just like when I see injustice, no matter how large or how small, they spoke up and they did something about it. When, you know, it came to my opa, he stood up against the Nazis and did not allow them to take his sons to have to work in service to the Nazi movement. And so did my Tante Truce, my great aunt, is recognized with saving on the order of 10,000 children, Jewish children from the Nazis. With my mom, she had so many beliefs in the importance of living a good life. And so she always carried that forward, even if it was seeing somebody behaving inappropriately in the supermarket, butting in line or being unkind to the check register person unnecessarily. My mom was always the first to speak up and say, hey, you know, don't do that. And so I just learned from them by watching them, by being supported by them that, again, you live what you believe. And when you see injustice in the world, you do what you can to address it, whether it's large or whether it's small. This pump came to me while listening to Maya. I was thinking about the environment and the earth and what it means to me. I thought of nature as something that is too kind and won't ever ask for help. It won't be able to ask for help because nature doesn't have a voice. The heart of nature beats within, as it trickles with the waves, the whispered sounds, even the wind. One foot sinks in the dirt, the other accidentally steps on its toes. Everything feels connected, alive, the relentless flow. And it's so kind, too kind, it gives away too much. A girl could ask for its rose, the trees would bend down, shake off its fluorescence, and ask her if she wants more. The loud noises could start, the metal all around, the greediness cutting at their legs, the paper green and they wouldn't make a sound. The flowers sigh to the sun, the trees dance in the night, and I swear I hear clapping coming from the moonlight. So I go to the forest, I stare and I awe, because of everything against them, I want them to know, I hope they live on. That is why I agree with Maya about how we are the voices of nature and the earth. In order to advocate for them, we need to start implementing permanent things and we were able to do that starting with green amendments. I also think nature symbolizes people who are in marginalized communities. They are trying to use their voice to speak up about their environmental rights, like clean water, clean air, etc. But they aren't being heard. It is like they don't have a voice, which is horrible. They are clearly speaking loud and clear, but nothing is being done. In general, I think people don't really think about the environment around them. The other day, I saw someone throw their whole McDonald's drink out the window, cup and all. I think people think no matter what happens to the environment, nature, the earth, nothing will change and everything will be well. But it's not true. Trees die and don't come back to life. Even if we plant new ones, it isn't the same. Nature is beautiful and so alive, but it is also delicate and we need to take care of it. Now back to the interview. Yeah, and there's a quote in your book that talks about unnecessary construction, which harms the environment which says there was a river here and now there's a highway needed by nobody to the detriment of an entire community. Do you think there should be a say from the community to the addition of industrialization in the areas that they live? 
100%. I mean, people are the ones that are going to be directly affected by the damaging development or industrial operations that come into their community. And they really should have the priority in what happens and or how it happens and or if it happens. And I believe that's what the Constitution really helps us do. It really gives the power back to the people and make sure that it's not just up to government to decide what happens within our communities, but that ultimately the power relies in the people. Because the Constitution is we, the people, telling our government, you must protect our environmental rights and you must give our voice priority over the profit-making goals of industry. It's certainly heartening with your humanistic principles, but I don't know how you'd like to define it because it's humans on first and nature is first. It's wonderful, though, how you got that from your grandparents, your parents. You passed that along. And what was important for you to pass along to Annika? I think that I just carry on the message of my lineage about the importance of environmental protection and environmental justice. One of the big stories I really tell about my childhood, which really had a big impact, was Amongst the things that my mom did for the environment, she came here from Europe. My parents came from Europe. And she would witness that people would take their leaves from their big rolling lawns and they would rake them up and put them in plastic trash bags and put those leaves out for trash so they could take up space in the landfill. And this beautiful nurturing part of nature, these leaves, right, that should give nutrients back to the soil. And my mom knew that that was wrong. And so she would, every fall, drive around with our VW van and literally take those plastic bags out of people's trash and put them in the VW van and drive them back to our house and dump the leaves out so the leaves could compost and become rich soil. And those big plastic bags could be reused in somewhat more sensible ways. We've never had plastic trash bags when I was growing up, but she would use these bags in some way that made a difference. She always invited me to go with her. And when I was very young, it was kind of embarrassing. I would be happy to go spend time with my mom, but then people would come out of their homes and look at us like we were crazy because we were picking these bags out of their trash. And so I would get a little embarrassed and step back, you know, because I was a child. But my mom looked at it as a teaching moment. And she would raise up her hand and she would say, hello, how are you? Um, I'm just taking the leaves home for compost. And she would, in this very bright, loving way, send a really important message that leaves are part of nature and they belong in nature and not in landfills. And so seeing as you're throwing them away, I'm going to come around and rescue them and put them to good environmental use. And it was in this delightful, quick, short way, she created a teaching moment for those homeowners, but also for me, her daughter, that even if somebody looks at you sideways when you do what's right. If you know it's right, you need to follow through and continue to do it. If you can use it as a teaching moment, great. If you can't, you know, who cares? You do what you believe is right. And over time, I came to really see the beautiful way that my mother would practice what she preached, but also preach a little bit whenever she found an opportunity. And I really became proud to go with her. And I loved it when people came out and looked at us crazy when we were picking their trash for leaves, because I knew we were doing something good for the earth. And I've carried out that same exercise with my daughter. And I've watched my daughter have the same experience of going from, you know, embarrassment to pride 
you know, beyond your activism for the Green Amendment movement, what are some of those strategies? Sometimes we don't realize we're in agreement. We're just arguing over the small details. So what are some of your strategies as an environmental lawyer, as a mother, as a, a community activist? I'm probably not as good as most because I really deeply believe what I believe. But I do think it is very important to listen, but also when you're delivering your alternative message, your alternative perspective, you don't have to do it with an angry voice. You don't have to do it with a hard physical posture. You can do it with a smile, listen to what they have to say, and then you can rise up and defend your belief system in a way that feels more open, both to what you're hearing and hopefully, I think a lot of it is not so much what we say, it's how we say it. And I think people are more likely to listen. And so there are different places or different spaces when I just feel very strongly, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna change somebody's mind, I'm not gonna bring them around, but it's really important that I stand up for what I believe for the environment, against racism, for individual rights to bodily autonomy. And I'm not so concerned about my delivery. I'm just more concerned about speaking the truth so that anybody else around who is from that impacted community hears that they have a champion in Maya. And that might not change the mind of the person whose mind's not gonna be changed anyway, but it might be nurturing and uplifting and feel protective and beneficial to those who are otherwise being targeted or harmed. It's kind of like standing up to the bully, right? You're not worried about the bully feeling good about what you're saying. A lot of what you're doing is you're protecting the victim. You're protecting them physically, but you're also protecting them emotionally and letting them feel validated and cared for and letting them know that the message of the bully is not the message that they should be taking into their heart and their soul. And I believe the same is true on all issues of justice. Sometimes I'm not really talking to the person I'm talking to. I'm talking to everybody else around who's listening. What do you feel positive about in terms of solutions that are on the horizon? So I think it's really great that the government is finally coming around at the federal level with the Inflation Reduction Act. And we've seen it over time with some states, not others, really coming around to recognize that part of the duty of government is to help people gain access to clean energy options, to those electric cars, to those solutions, and to make sure that they really are accessible to all people and that there are some people with more wealth that don't need a subsidy or help, but there are other people with less wealth where we really do need to give them more of a helping hand. And to see that become more of a recognized and embraced obligation of government I think is refreshing. We have had for so long the fossil fuel industry be given handouts of all kinds to perpetuate their fossil fuel extraction activities, their fossil fuel burning cars, I mean, all of that. And now we really are starting to see government say, okay, we're going to give the helping hand to the clean and renewable energy industries but we're also going to recognize that we need to help the individuals take advantage of those clean energy options by helping them pay for solar panels on their roof, by helping them buy electric vehicles at an affordable cost, 
there are myriad of things that are being done. And that really heartens me to see that change in the role of government. Because the truth is, there are a lot of things that people can do, right? We can all use cloth bags. We can all use reusable cups. Don't use a straw, right? When you have a birthday party or a party of any kind at your home, don't buy throwaway plates and cups and straws. Get one set of reusables, borrow reusable stuff from your friends, have a party with reusable plates and cups. and like So there are a lot of things that we all can do, but there are many things that just are out of reach for too many people. Solar panels on your roof are an important part of the solution. They're a costly investment. Heat pumps if you have to run air conditioning and geothermal, an important part of the solution, a really out of reach investment for most people. And so that is where government has to come in with the laws they pass, but also with the programs they put in place to help make these out of reach solutions accessible so people can also be part of the solution on those, you know, on that bigger scale, which is essential right now if we're to honor our obligation to protect future generations, which I think it is our obligation. And I'm just sad that it's taking so much time. Yes, we need to identify the current barriers that are stopping people, organizations, institutions, and governments from making these changes and then see them as opportunities to instigate change that aligns with local needs. So you're talking about advocating for nature. I know it's separate, but your reflections on earth law, I don't know if that is something that could be passed in the U.S. as they have done in Ecuador. Yeah, earth law, I refer to it as the rights of nature. I have talked with communities about how to write rights of nature language into a green amendment if that is what best suits the characteristics of that state, right? That's one of those things that we talk about that, you know, different states have different perspectives on. And I have actually crafted up language for consideration and to be discussed. But like there is a side of me that's pragmatic. And it's not, I will never be pragmatic in a way that sacrifices the earth, but also, but I'm talking about in terms of strategy. And there are many, many people who believe in the rights of nature and that the river should have its own voice and the wildlife and the forest and the trees should have their own voice in our human world. But there are many, many people who do not. And if we add rights of nature into our Green Amendment language from the get-go, we are creating a higher hurdle for passage strategically, because we don't just have people who don't agree with rights of nature, but there is opposition to it. And I'm not just talking about opposition from an industry. So if we add rights of nature in from the get-go, we are just raising the bar in terms of near-term passage of our constitutional green amendment and our environmental rights. And we just need to recognize that. And if one state wants to do that, I will work with them to make it happen. But there's also a different path. We could start with a Green Amendment that it has that people focus, which is how the Constitution is written, because the Constitution is fundamentally about the relationship between people and their government. Let's get that Green Amendment that gives all people the right to a clean, safe and healthy environment protected equitably, regardless of race, ethnicity, socioeconomics or tribal status. And then. Once we secure that and we're enforcing it and we're getting the benefits of it, then we can go to the next step and we can start pursuing a rights of nature provision that adds to the Green Amendment. So there are a lot of different ways to approach it. I personally believe in rights of nature, but I also personally believe that if we have 
powerful Green Amendment language with all the best elements in it that I talk about, we will be supercharging environmental protection because we will be giving the people the power they need to protect the forests and the sturgeon and the rivers and the critters who do ultimately, whatever we think about rights of nature, do ultimately need a person to walk into that courtroom or that legislative hole and give them a voice in our human world and be their most powerful voice and advocate. Nature needs people to defend it in our human world. And so we just have to give the people the most powerful tools. And I think the Green Amendment gets us there. Yes. And we have a great defender in you and your team, making sure that we have all the right language there, removing all those legal loopholes, which we're all too familiar with. Yeah, I think people have to do the research. And how do you think people can start getting more involved with preserving the environment on a day-to-day basis? So it's very important, just daily life choices, right? And that's something that everybody can do. I'm not asking you to be perfect. I'm asking you to do the best you can. So from the cleaning products you choose to the toilet paper you choose to the amount of water you use to, again, cloth bags, reusable cups, all of those kinds of things. But I think the other thing that people need to do now, we all have different personalities. So it's going to be different how we all do it. It's going to be a little bit more scary for others. But we also need to start sharing our love for the environment and the solutions that we find to help do things better environmentally. Share that with our friends, with our neighbors, with our community members. But we need to start to share our conviction about the importance of living in a way that's environmentally protective. And then when we find solutions, sharing them. We also need to speak up and speak out to our government. Speak against the highly polluting industrial operation that is creating an environmental sacrifice zone where black and brown and indigenous communities are being targeted yet again for another highly polluting industrial operation and say to our town leaders, to our state legislators, to our governors, members of Congress, no, we stand against this. You must say no and advocate against bad things and advocate for good things with our government. Because while we all can make a contribution to the solution, the reality is we are only going to save our rivers, our forests, our climate, future generations with big solutions that require powerful laws and appropriate implementation, passage, and then enforcement of constitutional green amendments that are going to make wholesale, big scale, dramatic transformational change. So we all have to do our part because that's important because it's all about cumulative impacts, making sure we're only electing people to government office that will stand up in defense for our communities and for our environment. That is so essential for ensuring everybody has the right to the benefit of a clean, safe, and healthy environment because in the absence of good government, good laws, and constitutional environmental rights, the environment and people will always come second, third, fourth, fifth, last to industry or the personal political goals of politicians unless we do something to not let that happen.
Exactly. Very well said. That huge divide between the price and the true cost and this accountancy is coming to bear now. You know, as you're working with different states, you spoke about adapting the Green Amendment for different states. Could you speak about some of their priorities as you listen to them or like what needs to be included or how you bring people around in those different regions? So a Green Amendment is not specific language, but it is a specific kind of constitutional environmental rights amendment that, again, places environmental rights on par with those other fundamental freedoms that have highest constitutional and legal standing and protection. And so what I have is I do have model language that I encourage people to use as a starting place when I work with them. But mainly what I have are criteria. There are certain criteria that must be fulfilled to get that highest unconstitutional protection. The language has to be in the Bill of Rights section of the Constitution. It has to be what we call self-executing, meaning that it has legal strength and force in its own right. It's not entirely defined by laws that the legislature passes. It has to be clear about what we're talking about, clean water, clean air, a stable climate and healthy environments, as opposed to what some states talk about, which is the right to trap animals, right? That's considered by some to be an environmental right. That's fundamentally different. It has to apply to all levels of government. Can't just be about the state legislature or the Congress. We have to be ensuring that the local town council and the state legislature, and the governor's office, and all the regulatory agencies in between, and all the government officials that work there are all constitutionally bound to recognize and protect our environmental rights and protect our natural resources for present and future generations. So those are just among the must-have criteria to be a Green Amendment. And then there are also things that I recommend that are really important. Like if climate is important to your state, which I would suggest it is to every state, don't leave it to a judge to read the right to a stable climate into the right to clean air. Just really say, we have a constitutional right to a stable climate. Say it, be explicit, be clear. And there are many aspects of a Green Amendment where that sort of point comes up. So I go into work with communities from this starting place. I really try to ensure that we have diverse representation in the conversation throughout the whole process from the get-go all the way through all the efforts to seek and secure a passage of a constitutional Green Amendment because we want to make sure all pro-environment, pro-community perspectives can have a say in what's happening as long as they're not trying to derail it. I'm very protective. I won't support something as a Green Amendment if it's not a Green Amendment. But different states, right, have different priority levels. So for some states, the having a constitution, having a bill of rights provision that talks about the rights of all people to clean water, clean air, a stable climate and healthy environments and creates an obligation on all government officials to protect the natural resources of the state as a trustee for benefit of present and future generations. That language is very powerful from an environmental justice perspective, because it really mandates that government officials protect natural resources and environmental rights equitably across communities, regardless of race, ethnicity, socioeconomics. And so for some states, they want to leave it at that. But for other states, like in Washington, like in New Mexico, they want to be more explicit 
They don't want people to have to understand how a green amendment works, to understand that they get environmental justice protections. They just want to say it. So in addition, we add language that says our government officials must protect these rights equitably across communities, regardless of race, ethnicity, tribal status, socioeconomics, or geography. We say it explicitly. For many states, recognizing these as rights of future generations explicitly is really important. And I believe not only is it morally important, I believe that it's also legally important to include that language. But there are some states where people want to use fewer words. It's more in keeping with how their constitution is written, for example. And so they will say that there are the rights to a clean, safe, and healthy environment, but they leave out that generational language. I, I don't think that's best practice, but again, you know, I'm not the decision maker for every state, so I think that we can get that generational protection, even if the language isn't there, but it's much more powerful and the amendment is much more protective if we're explicit about things like generational protection and climate. The self-executing nature, the idea that the Constitution is above the laws, not just defined by the laws and what they say, is a must-have. I recommend, say it. This provision is self-executing. That way, legally, there's no question if ever it goes to the courts that industry can argue against, successfully argue against that powerful attribute of a Green Amendment. But again, some states, they say, look, Maya, all of our Bill of Rights provisions are interpreted as self-executing, so we don't need to say it. And I will agree with them if it, you're in a state like that. You don't need to say it, but it's safer to say it. It doesn't, you know, leave it to the vagaries of some outlier justice who's going to misinterpret what it should be. So some states want to emphasize the recreational protections of the environment. Some states want to include the term soils. They want to be clear it's healthy water, air, and soils, right? So there are different, in some states where Native American communities and indigenous communities are a more significant proportion of the population. We've talked about language that in the Green Amendment, you must protect the cultural values of the environment. That's designed to respect and raise up and protect the cultural belief of Native American and indigenous communities to a clean, safe, and healthy environment and how that is part of their whole life system and their whole society and their whole belief system. And so talking about the cultural values of the environment is intended to help uplift that aspect of Native American and indigenous communities here in the United States of America. So those are just a few examples. It really is all over the place. You have to meet the basic criteria, but once you meet those criteria, there are a lot of different ways to help respect the unique characteristics and qualities of each of the different states and the communities with which we're working. Oh, with, it's so fascinating too, because I imagine that that's a great challenge. As you say, you sometimes wanting to limit that language so that it prepares for all eventualities <laughs> and at the same time, not being so vague that it just doesn't protect enough. And I don't know how that works within the number of lobbyists in Washington, you know, per senator, per congressman. I believe it's something like 15 to 20, or it might be more than that. So how do you fit within fighting against the immense power of lobbyists? 
So I do just want to be clear, all Green Amendment language is broad. And that will always be the claim of the opposition. It's too broad. We can't be detailed and specific because, as you say, we need to make sure that we cover all eventualities. But there are just some ways to make it fit more the personality of the state. We're never going to get into the minutia. That really is what the rest of the system is about. One of the things that we really need in the Green Amendment movement is more support from donors and foundations and grant makers so that we can continue to rise to meet the needs of the many communities that are seeking out this pathway for protection. Because as you said and suggest, industry has big bucks and they got lots of lobbyists. Now, I'm not suggesting that our Green Amendment movement invests in lobbyists. We do not. We invest in people. And that's how our resources get utilized in educating individuals and organizations and leaders of all kinds within a state so they become the advocates, could call them the lobbyists, but really they become the advocates for constitutional environmental rights. And they will always be more credible and more convincing than any high paid lobbyist. But it, that takes a lot more time and a lot more outreach. But it is really important because the Constitution is the people's document. And so we need the people advocating for it. And they will do it most effectively. And so that's really how we approach that aspect of the work. Oh, definitely people. I can see you gave as much energy one-on-one -on -one as you do to a group. I can see the Maya Van Rossum road trip. I see how you pass this message on, but it's one that we're all coming around to it. And I'm just glad to see that. I think that in your 30 years, it's a life's work, right? You must have a lot of reason to actually be hopeful because you have personally achieved things. And as you look back on that, what are you happy that you achieved? I'm happy that we protected the Delaware River from fracking at the Delaware Riverkeeper Network. I'm happy that I stopped the Dark Hollow Dam. I am not happy that highway that was referred to in the quote where they literally filled in part of a river for a highway to accommodate truckers that cut the people, the Trenton community off of their riverfront. That kind of loss is heart-wrenching. My very first Mother's Day, I was out there with my baby on my back knocking on doors, handing out flyers, my way of trying to get people to step up and step out against that highway and we lost. So there are many successes that I'm happy about. Big one, of course, is our Pennsylvania victory that brought me to this place of founding the Green Amendment movement. But I think more than that, I am hopeful. I am hopeful because I see so many people who care and who care deeply and who are really embracing this Green Amendment movement. It's amazing how powerfully it resonates with people because while they can't get their heads around what does the Clean Water Act say or the Clean Air Act say or the blah, this law or that, they can get their heads around, I have a right to clean water and clean air and I'm going to advocate for it. And so that's a beautiful, powerful thing. And it's really so empowering to see how people advocate for the environment in general but also advocate for this Green Amendment movement because the message is so accessible. I think the other thing is that I also just had this real belief, if I can't be positive and hopeful, what's my option to become depressed and sit down and shut up? Well, if I sit down and shut up, that's one less voice for the earth. That's one less voice for nature. That's one less voice for victimized people, you know, who are being sacrificed to industry. So I don't really feel like I have the luxury 
of wallowing in defeat or despair and sitting down and shutting up. I feel that I have a duty and an obligation to speak for the earth. And while fundamentally the the Green Amendment movement and constitutional Green Amendments are about the rights of the people, I believe that by framing our Green Amendments in the way traditional constitutional rights are framed, where it is a right of the people, we give so much power to nature because we really are giving the people the power they need to protect our natural resources, to speak in defense of our critters and our wild places and our wild spaces and for future generations to rise up in the most powerful way for our climate. I believe 100% in, in the rights of nature, 100%. But the thing is fundamentally at its core, the rights of nature are about nature having its own voice in the courtroom, right? Being able to bring its own legal challenges to defend itself. But when you're going into the courtroom, what you are relying upon are the laws on the books. And if the laws on the books suck and sacrifice nature, in my mind, it doesn't matter if it's the river advocating for itself or a person advocating for the river. If the laws don't rise to the occasion of protecting the river in the most powerful way it needs to be protected and protecting the people in the most powerful way they need to be protected, then we're not going to be victorious at the end of the day. But the Constitution is above those laws. So it creates this overarching power and really empowers people to be better advocates for themselves and better advocates for nature. And so I guess I just like look at all of these things together and I'm hopeful and I really believe that we will save the world. And I'm just sad that it's taking so much time. Thank you, Maya Van Rossum, for speaking your truth and all you do to safeguard and protect our rivers and watersheds and your advocacy for our generations so that we can better manage this most valuable resource that gives life to everything. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. Thank you. And thank you for all you do, because it's through messengers like you that we will achieve victory. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Megan Hagenbar with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Megan Hagenbar. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbar. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.